want to be diligent on those small matters, right? We keep our attention. We make sure that, you know, sometimes a, a small thing like that will, will trigger, uh, you know, other adjustments in our thinking when it comes to Scripture. So think about this morning when our brother stood up and, uh, and shared that portion. Uh, brother Wainwright stood up and shared that portion about how um, when Jesus died, when he was crucified, that the graves were opened, right? But no one was resurrected until after Jesus was. So there you have Friday night, Saturday night, and part of Sunday morning, or I don't know how early Jesus was resurrected. It may have been right away. We don't know. Of course, you know, of all the descriptions that are given in the resurrection story, there's one description that's left out, and that's the exact actual resurrection. We know everything that led up to it. We know everything that happened after it, but we don't have any description of the actual resurrection, right? And But at that time, so sometimes those things just trigger uh, and, and clarify, right, other passages. Well, we're going to go real briefly, uh, 1 Samuel um, chapters 1 and 2, and it's really, it's really uh, kind of divided up quite easily. You know, when we come... To First Samuel, First uh, Samuel, it opens up. When it opens up, it's it is the period of the judges in Israel. Okay, it's kind of a new period. It's the period that the the patriarchs of Israel are in the past. You know, like Joseph and and Jacob, and it's it's before the kings. Okay. Saul and David and Solomon and so on. It's a period in the middle where the judges in Israel, there's judges in Israel like Barak and, and Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And that's the time that we're coming into. A great point of history, a great historical um, uh, uh, writing here tells us a lot about Israel and that time of history. And there's a lot of turmoil going on in Israel at that time. It's a, it's a time of confusion. It's a, a time of spiritual degeneracy. Spiritually, as we enter into these first two chapters, we're, we are exposed to some of the sin, the spiritual sins that are going on in uh, even people who are to be representing God in his temple. And and it was a time of a corrupt priesthood. Um, it's a time when there was moral desecration in the temple. A very sad period of time. Chapter 1, really, I kind of had it laid out, but we're just going to kind of go a little bit quickly. It, it opens up, and there are some... We, we are introduced to two families. And ultimately, we are introduced to a contrasting familiar familiar or family aspects two different families right in um, first Samuel chapter 1 it says there was a certain man of Ramathan Zophin of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham son of Elihu son of Tohu son of Zuth and Ephratite and he had two wives the name of one was Hannah and the name of the other was Penina 
Penina had children. Hannah had none. Verse 3 says, he used to go up every year um, from the city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, Hophni and uh, Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So in these opening verses, we are brought before two families. The family of Elkanai, his two wives, one had children and the other didn't, and we're not going to even talk about that. There's a, a, whole, a whole section there that are some great spiritual truths, but um, we're not really going to go into that. We're just going to be kind of topical here. So you have that family with Hannah and um, his other wife, Penina. And then you have Eli and his evil sons. Okay? And these chapters, in these opening chapters, God switches back and forth. He talks about Elkanah's family. He's He's, he's describing Hannah and the experience of Hannah. And then he goes back to Eli. And we're going to just look at that real quickly. And what the contrast, I think, that was able to de- be developed out of this. And I didn't pull this up myself. Um, I was looking around and, and I found a great, um, uh, some, some great notes. What the contrast here is, is a contrast of natural affection in the light of the will of God. Okay? You have two families. You have the natural affection and you have pleasing God or, or, or uh, the will and the pleasing of God. The natural, you know, natural affection. You've, you've heard the saying, um, blood is thicker than water, Right? Because there's a natural affection there. You know, Laura and David came in, and I don't get to see Micah a lot, but when I see him, it tickles my belly. There's a natural affection there, right? And um, so, so that's, that's one issue that we have here. And then there's, there's the will of God and God's revelation. Honoring God's revelation. That's the two contrasts that are in these two chapters. Here lies the contrast of the priestly family of Eli and the family of Elkanah. Now, in verse 4, we see that there's a problem, right? In verse 4, it says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons. He gave her what was appropriate. He loved her. And by the way, he had two wives. No, the scriptures do not condone, you know, plurality of marriage or what is that called? Polygamy, okay? No, they do not. You know, although it did happen, it's never endorsed. And every time you see it, there's always a P-R-O-B-L-E-M, okay? A problem. It creates nothing but problems because it is out of design, right? So he had two wives, um, and he would give, El- he would give uh, the one... Uh, Penina, what was due? But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and though the Lord had closed her room. And the idea is, is that, um, you know, the, the idea of a double portion was if there was a favored guest, you would give them a double portion. So there was favor there that he would show her. And, of course, there was the rivalry there. Have we heard that before? You remember Sarah and um, Hagar 
There's always that rivalry. There's where the problems come. You know, polygamy is not endorsed even though God uses it, right? For his providential will, uh, it's never endorsed. And so it went on, verse 7, year by year, as they went to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her in verse 8. Um, and, and Hannah would want, she would weep. There was, she, there was natural affection going on. She wanted children, right? And by the way, it's a wonderful thing because I think that to, to be a parent is one of the greatest callings, is one of the greatest privileges of humanity to be a parent. And it's the most natural thing. Well, in our world, maybe not, right? Because children, to many people, are a, a hassle form, right? But it's the most natural thing, especially if it's done as God's designed it, right? So she wanted and she cried. And, you know, and Elkanah, you know, being the humble man he is, he's like, what are you crying about? <laughs> Ain't I better than ten children? <laughs> you know? And so, but... Actually, it doesn't satisfy, you know, that natural affection. In verse 19, it says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And now it goes back to Eli the priest. And look, later on, he, this guy is fascinating because he's a big, fat man, it says later on in chapter 4. And he's always, he's always sitting on the seat beside the doorpost because he can't hold himself up. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But that's how I picture him. He's sitting at the seat, the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Says, and then in verse 10, it says that she wept and she cried and she wept bitterly and, and she makes a vow. And here again is an expression of her natural affection. And is she going to, what is she going to do about it? Well, in verse 11, she makes a vow. It says, and, and she vowed a vow. And, and by the way, when she vows a vow, her husband, in that culture, he would, he would have to approve it. She didn't just go and say, on her own, right, independently, this is what I'm going to do. Right? So she got with Elkanah, and then she made this vow there. And she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed uh, look on the affliction of your servant, remember me, forget me not, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days and no races. So the vow was to go against her natural affection. If you give me this son, the most natural thing is to what? To have him and to keep him and to, you know, take him out, play baseball and all that other stuff, right? That's the natural. But she says, no, I'll give him back to you. And it goes on, verse 12, and she continued praying and and. Eli observed her, and he's so undiscerning. He's like she's drunk, right? And But she was speaking. It says Hannah was speaking where? She was speaking in her, in her heart in verse 13. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be drunk. And he said, how long have you been drinking? You know, she spoke, and it's interesting. Uh, one fellow brought up the observation in the New Testament assembly when we come together and the men speak verbally, right? And the men worship verbally. How do the women? Where? The, what are the women? Silently, but they're worshiping where? In their heart. 
right? And, and, and she spoke in her heart. So it does count what happens in your heart. And by the way, I believe that's where God starts. He starts in your heart. You know, the Christian life, have I ever said this before? The Christian life is an inside job. It starts from the inside and works out, right? So it says, uh, so we see here that she was speaking from her heart and that it's going to be through this woman during that time, during that very tumultuous, wicked period of time that God would begin to bring a revival to the nation. He would use this young woman to bring revival to the nation of Israel. And it all started in her heart. And she made a vow to God. So God granted her request. Verse 21, or we'll just skip on down to verse 21. It says, then after she had had the child and, and um, she, she, she weaned the child, which normally would be about three years during that time, two to three years, right? And, and, and you know, she had a right relationship. Hannah had right relationship. She had a right relationship with her husband. She had a right relationship with God, right? And she had a right relationship with her family, with her, with her son. She stayed home. She cared for him. You know, they say that in a child's life, that 90% of that child's develop, development is done. The first, what that child is going to be is established within the first three years of that child's life. 90% of what they are. So she stayed. She weaned the child. And then in verse 21, it says, Then Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice. Hannah didn't go up. She stayed home. And then Elkanah, Elkanah her husband said to her, you know, do what's right. And after she weaned the child, she, in verse 24, she took him up. And along with the offerings, she took him up, slaughtered the offerings. Uh, they brought him to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted my position that I made to, my petition I made to him. Therefore, I lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He's lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So in her vow, she goes against her deepest emotion. She goes against her natural affection. And then in chapter 2, we, we see her prayer. And one thing we find out, we're not going to look at it, but, you know, it's a lot like um, her prayer is a lot like the prayer of Mary in Luke, chapter 1, right, when she realized that she had conceived. Um, the one thing that Hannah understood was something that many, many men it took a long time for them to understand. And she understood about something about her God, God that a lot of men didn't know. Look at, look at 1 Samuel 2, um, verse 9. Verse 9. It says, <clears throat> 1 Samuel 2, verse 9. It says, in, this is the, the middle of her prayer regarding uh, uh, the Lord's work, the Lord. It says, He will guard the feet of His saints... But the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. What did Hannah understand? Hannah understood that 
human initiative, that human power, that the human ways of man do not win. Not when it comes to understanding the will of God. She understood that it is God who lifts up. She understood that it is God who puts down and it is God who makes things happen. And so with all of this, God would begin to bring a revival. Look in, in, in uh, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministered, ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, in verse, verse 12, we're going back, the contrast. Now, we've been talking about uh, Elkanah and, and, her fam- and, and his family. We've been talking about the natural affection. We're talking about going against the nat- natural affection, right, and embracing the will of God embracing, pleasing God. Now we're going to go back to Eli. Look at what it says. And Man, how would you like to have this testimony? Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They were debauched, it says. They were diabolos. They were diabolical. Right? They, they, they were worthless. Right? And, and, and they did not know the Lord. And they were the priests. They worked in the church. You know, they worked in the temple there. And you know, when men function in the house of God that don't know God, things do not go well. I can assure you that. It doesn't go well. It will be a disaster. And, you know, I'm not going to steal anyone else's thunder, but chapters 3 and 4 reveal exactly what happens when that kind of a relationship is you participate in that type of a relationship. So men functioning in the house of God who don't know God in a personal way proves to be a disaster, and it's no different then as it is today. Right? Verse 13. It goes on to talk about the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice that the priests would come, and while the meat was boiling, there was a certain... There was a certain order of the sacrifice, right? And we won't go all into it, but they brought the sacrifice. Uh, it, was, it was done in a certain way. There was a design, and Leviticus teaches us that there was a design. Some of it went as the offering to God. Some of it went to the priest, and some of it went back to the worshiper, right? But um, look at what happens here. It says here uh, uh, in verse 13 with a three-pound fork in his hand, and he would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the fork brought up, the priests would take whatever it brought up. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Okay, So that was, that was the way that it was, it was done, designed. But look at verse 14. Moreover, before the fat was burned. But this is what the sons of Eli would do. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and they would say to the man who was sacrificing, before they started the process, they would say, give for the priest the roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you. I want it the way I want it. So there's a way that it was supposed to be done, but these priests decided they didn't like it boiled. They wanted to take it and roast it. 
They wanted to do it their way. And then look at verse 16. And if a man says, uh, well, let them burn the fat first, which they were supposed to, then take as much as you wish. And he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So they became bullies. They were spiritual bullies in a lot of respects. So what belonged to God, they didn't really care about. They were not concerned about what the law said, right? Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 16 said that all the fat is the Lord's. It was the Lord's, but they would take it to themselves. What belonged to God was being used for their own selfish desires. Instead of pleasing God, they decided to satisfy their own desires. And a lot of other things were going on there. Those things, by the way, the fat and the offering that was brought um, for the sacrifice, they spoke of affection and they were to be dedicated to God, right? In our in our marriage relationships, right? We are dedicated. We don't want somebody doing whatever they want. You know, I don't want someone coming up, you know, taking my wife out to dinner and doing all kinds of whatever they want. No, we, 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 we do it um, because of our affection to one another. We are dedicated to each other. And these offerings were symbolic of that. They pictured that. Well, now we come to God's... Uh, commentary in verse 17 in chapter 2 verse 17 it says thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt and you know the world generally doesn't see that as sinful these things you want to know what the, the world sees as sinful not that you would not that you would defy God or not honor God or not be willing to please him what they see is sinful is if it hurts somebody. You know, I could, perfect illustration. I was talking to a neighbor, uh, an older lady, and I shared a gospel with her. She didn't want to have anything to do with it over and over again. And then a couple of houses down, two women just got married, and, uh, right? So the, all this stuff is going on on the block. Well, the lady, that old lady I talked to, she kind of endorses it. Everything is okay. Well, I was sharing a gospel with her one day, and then, Somehow the conversation got into how that lifestyle was unacceptable to God. And she goes, well, you know, I don't see how that is. And I said, well, um, uh, she said, they, they, I said, so you're telling me they can't help themselves. That's, that's how they are. And she says, well, yeah. I said, well, what if a pedophile says he can't help himself? That's just the way he is. You know what she said to me? She says, well, that's wrong because that hurts people. Well, what about God? Right? God says, I hate that stuff. She doesn't care if it offends God so long as it doesn't hurt the community. Right? That's what the world thinks about. And so um, we see that the world doesn't consider those things like sin. It doesn't personally affect somebody, so it's all right. You know, they didn't steal anything from me. They didn't rob anything. They didn't run in or break anything of mine. They didn't hurt anybody. They're okay. They're okay. But we know that not only are there moral sins, but there are spiritual sins. 2 Corinthians 7.1 tells us that. 
2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and what? Spirit, right? You know, I was thinking about it because I'll try to move on. I'm sorry. But, you know, Jesus, when Jesus came in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. When you think of the law, you have the moral realm of the law. That involves the whole world hurting people, right? Right? You have the ceremonial law, right? In Israel, that involved the temple for us. It's our worship here, right? And then you have the judicial or the, the there's another word, uh, um, or the, the, the spiritual. This involves the law between us and God, right? The spiritual law. And you can... Break the moral law, but you can also break the spiritual law, right? Break the spiritual law by not pleasing God, right? By pleasing ourselves, our natural affections, right, become more important to us than doing the will of God. And that's the contrast that we're seeing here. And so we switch back in verse 18 to Elk and I, and here is a son dedicated to God going across natural affections, right? He was ministering to the Lord, and, um, you know, you can read all the way through that down to, um, down to verses 25. And then 1 Samuel 12:25. Eli here, and I think I got myself a little kind of messed up there. Um, switch back. We go to Elkanah in verse 18, and then in 22 we switch back to Eli, and we see here it says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all the sins that, uh, were, that his sons were doing in Israel, they were laying with the women and, and doing all kinds of things, you know. The, 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 and, and he says to them, um, why do you do these things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. And he goes on, he says, no, my sons, it's, it's not a good report. And then he kind of sort of trivializes it. It's, it's amazing, this guy. He trivializes it and he says, well, let's take it for instance. If someone, in verse 25, if someone sins against a man, you know, um, God will mediate for him, right? There'll be some kind of a, God will take care of that for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who, who can intercede for him? And it goes on to say, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And, you know, even though Eli rebuked his sons strongly, he didn't do what he should have done. He should have done, what he should have done is he should have either restrained them or he should have removed them. And it's the same thing in the assembly today. Oh, well, you know, so-and-so had offended so-and-so. God will take care of it. God will take care of it. No. No, it's the responsibility of the leadership, the 
priesthood of the believers, right, to tend to it. Either restrain them, bring discipline into their lives, or remove them. It says in First Samuel, it says in Leviticus um, uh, 7.25 is for every person who eats of the fat of an animal. And remember what they were doing. They were taking the fat for themselves instead of dedicating it to God, right? It says, if any man takes the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, he shall be cut off from his people, right? He shall be cut off. So he should have been cut off. It says in verse 13, And I declare to him, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, in verse 13, it says, And I declare to him that I, the Lord says, I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not, what? Restrain them. So he didn't do what he should have done as regarding the natural affections. He, he allowed his natural affections to override pleasing the Lord. And then we switch back to Samuel. It says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and, with, and also with men. In verse 26. Amazing. Right? Uh, and then we go back to Eli, a man who put natural relationships over the revelation of God's will. In verse 27, it says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself? And he goes on and explains it to him. Go, go down to verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? that I commanded for my dwelling, right? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. And notice what sin God pointed out in verse 27. He didn't talk about what they were doing with the temple women, right? He didn't talk about, you know, all of the other things. He didn't talk about them even taking the the fact. He says, you what? You honor your sons over me. The God that I serve is a jealous God. <laughs> he doesn't want part of me. He wants all of me. Right? And so we notice that God pointed out uh, that the one thing that most affected him was that spiritual sin. Was that spiritual sin. And then quickly, and we'll close with this, that famous verse, verse 30. After that, you know, there's God's judgment. God, God declares what he's actually going to do to them. Uh, but verse 30, it says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, well, they'll be, the ESV says, lightly esteemed. <laughs> right? So the comparison we see here is a natural affection in relationship to the revelation of God. 
And the emphasis for the believer is not on our relationships, but first, revelation of God. What does God say? And we see that in the New Testament, Ephesians 1.17. It says, you know, the Apostle Paul, he's praying and he says, you know, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then first there's the wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we, we go on to love your wives, love your children, love your husband, right? Before you can ever do that right, it's pleasing the Lord. In Philippians 1, we won't talk about it, but it talks about that as well. So that you, you bring to God what is pleasing to him first so that you can prove what is the right thing, prove what is the excellent thing. And, of course, Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing and thanksgiving. So there's an order. There's an order. And what is it that will please God comes first. He always wants what is pleasing to him. What, God, what, is, what, what has God revealed first? We see what has God revealed, and then we have our family, right? Then you can tend to those natural affections, right? But God wants us first. The test of natural affection and pleasing God, right? When it comes, can we handle it? I don't know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. And we know that there's so much more we can glean from your word. We look at that story in 1 Samuel of Hannah and Elkanah and, and just the testimony of sacrificing our own desires, sacrificing those natural affections so that we can please you so that we can honor your revealed will. And it is revealed if we'll take the time and look. And so we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.